0: Thank you to whoever brings these beautiful flowers. I always enjoy the flowers here. <clears throat> I'm going to be turning to uh, the Book of First Kings this morning, and chapter 19. I'm kind of jumping into the middle of the prophet Elijah's life. Uh, just want to look at a at a short uh, passage there. The prophet Elijah was born during a time of spiritual decline in Israel. The last several kings had each been progressively more wicked. Ahab followed the example of Solomon and married Jezebel, a princess from Phoenicia, and he allowed Jezebel to establish the Phoenician uh, worship of Baal and Asherah in Israel as the, became the, the state religion. And <clears throat> They believed that Baal was responsible for the fertility of the soil, flocks and herds, people. And naturally, Baal worship was a temptation for an agricultural society. They also believed that Baal provided rain and food. Jezebel had appointed hundreds of priests and prophets of Baal and Asherah, while the prophets of Jehovah were persecuted and killed. And we're, those who were left were hiding to save their lives. And now Jezebel had gotten Ahab to issue an order to kill the remaining prophets of Jehovah. And into this scene, God brings Elijah. And uh, we see that in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah appears. We know nothing about Elijah's background. Um... The Bible calls him Elijah the Tishbite, so he's from Tishbe, which is in Gilead. It's a region east of the Jordan River. That's about all we know about him and where he's from. We know nothing about his parents except what his name tells us, which is important. Elijah's name means, my God is Jehovah. So although we don't know details about his parents, We do know that in a culture where public worship of Jehovah had disappeared, there were two people who chose to name their child, My God is Jehovah. They gave him a name to live up to. You could look at Elijah's name as his life motto. He spent his life serving the one true God. So he appears abruptly in scripture with no introduction. I'm not going to read. Um, First Kings 17, 18. <clears throat> Excuse me. am going to jump in at 19. Elijah was known as the greatest of the prophets. God showed his power through Elijah to turn a nation from Baal worship and back to himself. I'm encouraged to see Just a brief summary, I'm I'm encouraged to see how God built Elijah's faith. God told Elijah to go to King Ahab and tell him that it's not going to rain. There won't be any rain until I say so. Can you imagine having that job, being given that assignment? I would be terrified. I'm to go to the king and tell him it's not going to rain. And you're there representing Jehovah when you're hunted like an animal, you're, you know what to expect. You're going to be hunted down and killed. Well, so Elijah does this, and there's no rain for three and a half years. Next, God provides for him in his home area, east of the Jordan. God sent him there to hide from Ahab, and he provided for him in a supernatural way. The ravens brought him food twice a day. What would you think of getting food from a raven, a carrion eater. I don't know what they brought him, but they provided for him. I should say, not they, God provided for him through the ravens. Next, God sent him to Phoenicia, the center of Baal worship, and provides for him supernaturally through a widow who was also in need. Then God answered Elijah's prayer and brings the widow's dead son back to life. Next, God sent him back to Israel, right to the king and queen who want to kill him, to challenge them to a contest of the gods. And the God who answers by fire is the true God. I'm not going to go into that story. You're familiar with it. You have the miracle of fire where you know the story how Baal's prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, are doing everything they can possibly do to get Baal's attention and have him answer with fire, and nothing happens. And then Elijah prays, and God answers with fire. Following that, Elijah prays, and God brings rain after three and a half years of drought. In each one of these cases, God provided, and Elijah's faith grew. Elijah was a man who had such strong confidence in God that he was willing to take on impossible odds—four hundred and fifty to one—in obedience to Him. God had Elijah had a, a close relationship with God, so that he recognized God's voice and obeyed, even when it meant going way outside of his comfort zone. Going to another, he moved to another country. He. He was willing to go outside of his comfort zone. You would think that anyone that God worked so many miracles for must be some superhuman. But, in James chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, we're told that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was like you and I. The story of Elijah is a story of hope. He's a man like us, and God worked through him. In 1 Kings 18, after the miracle of fire and the miracle of rain, 1 Kings 18 ends with God enabling Elijah to run ahead of King Ahab's chariot. They're racing the rain, headed back to Jezreel. 25 miles, Elijah stayed ahead of the horses and chariot. It's like running. Can you imagine running a marathon against horses? That's pretty much what Elijah did. But God enabled him to do that. So Elijah's back in Jezreel, full of confidence. He knew what to expect from God. God had repeatedly answered his prayers in immediate, powerful ways. His God was wiping out all the competition. Now he knows what to expect. God's back. The worship of Jehovah is reestablished. It reminds me of my dog, Victor. I want to pause and tell you a story about Victor. I don't have Victor anymore. He died of a heart attack. But Victor loved cats, or he loved killing cats. (laughs) I'm sorry, cat lovers, but he killed a number of them. And I never sent him to kill cats, but he'd do it before I'd get there. So Victor knew cats. He had met them before. They always died easy. And one day, one night, he met a black and white cat outside of our house. We heard a ruckus outside, and sure enough, there was a skunk. And we actually smelled a smell before we got outside, and we knew what was happening. Oh, no. Well, cats had always died fast and easy, and it was great fun. So Victor attacked And he took it right in the face. He got sprayed right in the face. He's confused. He's shocked. His eyes are burning. When I arrived, he was backing up and shaking his head. He was foaming at the mouth and and, uh, his tongue hanging out. And just as I got there, Victor attacked a second time. And he got sprayed point blank, 18 inches from his face, right full in the face. And he was done fighting. And Victor thought he knew what was going to happen next. He thought this was going to be fun. He was quite confident. You see why I was reminded of Victor. That I, I see Elijah a little bit that way coming back into Jezreel. God's done big, exciting things. It's exhilarating. And he's coming back into the capital. He's coming back in and... Now he knows what to expect. Well, let's see what happens. Reading the first four verses of of, uh, 1 Kings 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Jezebel apparently had ignored the king's order, for all of... The nation together at Mount Carmel for the contest of the gods. But Ahab came home and reported to Jezebel what had happened. Hence this, this threat, the message she sent to Elijah. Doesn't that does this seem strange to you? If I were planning to kill someone, I wouldn't send them a message and say, tomorrow, by this time tomorrow, you're done. They're going to disappear. I think Elijah did exactly what Jezebel wanted him to do. She was probably, oh, I'm sure she would have liked to kill him, but she was probably afraid to kill him because of the people. But what better way to discredit God than to have his prophet run in fear and hide? She can take care of this, these changes, these unfortunate things in her view that had happened recently, by scaring God's prophet and having him run. So I think he did just what she wanted him to do. Satan will make sure that we have plenty of opportunity to run in fear. God brought you all this way just to have you killed. In panic, Elijah forgot his faith, and he ran over 100 miles to Beersheba. He ran from Jezreel in the northern kingdom of Israel to the southernmost city in the southern kingdom of Judah. He's on the edge of civilization. He leaves his servant and goes another day's journey, probably around 15 miles, on into the wilderness, into the desert. And he wants to die. What happened to the man who had so much confidence in God that he was willing to challenge 450 prophets of Baal? How does he run from one wicked woman? George Mueller said, The devil has two master tricks. One is to get us discouraged. Then for a time at least, we can be of no service to others and so are defeated. The other is to make us doubt, thus breaking the faith link by which we are bound to our Father. Look out. Do not be tricked either way. Discouragement and doubt. I'm going to read First Kings uh, five, uh, 19, verses 5 through 8. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on the coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went on in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. God was at work while Elijah was sleeping. You ever feel like everything depends on you? God was working when Elijah was discouraged, depressed, exhausted, and he needed sleep. God was actively providing for Elijah. And notice how God responds to his, Elijah's discouragement, his depression. He doesn't berate him for his lack of trust. He could have said, what You ran after everything I did for you? But he didn't do that. Instead, he provided what Elijah needed. He gave him food and water. He touched him. He cared about Elijah. He met his needs in spite of Elijah's weakness. And did you notice how long that food... Lasted. It strengthened him, it says, for 40 days and 40 nights. Talk about long-lasting food. It says it sustained him until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. That's approximately 250 miles on south of Beersheba. Elijah's a long way from home now he finds himself on the mountain known as the mountain of God. It's where God has revealed himself before. Reading verses 9 through first part of 13. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. I'm going to pause there. In the spring of 2013, this area experienced a derecho. How many of you remember that? Quite a few of you. That was, that wind just destroyed uh, a a lot of trees, a lot of things. My yard looked like a tornado had hit. I had six trees that not just branches came down, but the trees broke. And I spent about six hours towing things with my pickup and pulling them out in the field to burn later. The derecho is a widespread, long-lived, straight-line storm. It's usually associated with severe thunderstorms. At Washington National Airport that day, they recorded 91-mile-an-hour winds. And it dropped trees. It left hundreds of thousands of people without power. But I want to tell you, that wind was nothing compared to the wind that Elijah saw. That 91 mile an hour wind wasn't breaking rocks. It broke trees. But this is another wind on another level. But God wasn't in it. Following that is an earthquake. How many of you have ever experienced an earthquake? couple of you it's (laughs) it's an unsettling feeling right the nothing is stable usually if you feel unsteady you want to get on the ground where it's solid well the ground's not solid it's moving it's a very it's an unsettling feeling but God wasn't in that following that there's a fire now Elijah probably was sure that God would be in the fire I would have been in his shoes. I mean, historically, fire was a symbol of God's presence. If you think back to when the children of Israel left Egypt, God led them from a pillar of fire by day, and a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And you think of that, and then you think that just shortly before, God had sent fire on Mount Carmel. So Elijah's probably thinking, okay, now God's going to be here in the fire but God wasn't in the fire and then in verse 13 you have the still small voice or a gentle whisper totally unexpected completely different than what Elijah thought would happen Elijah was used to God showing himself in powerful ways One commentator said, God does not always move in the realm of the extraordinary. To live always seeking one high experience after another is to have misdirected zeal. The majority of life's service is in quiet, routine, humble obedience to God's will. Let me repeat that last sentence. The majority of life's service is in quiet, routine, Humble obedience to God's will. Listening to that gentle whisper. I'm going to continue on in the last part of verse 13. When he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Oh, one comment on that. You notice he's coming out of the cave here? God had him come out of the cave uh, back in verse 11, he says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and then you have the wind, the earthquake, the fire, and Elijah's back in the cave. I would be too. <laughs> he didn't want to be out in what was coming by, in God's demonstration of power. He was back in the cave. But when he heard the gentle whisper, he went back out again. He rapped. His mantle around his face, covered his face, went out. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Hazel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of abel Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Pause there. What are you doing here? That's the second time that God asked Elisha, what are you doing here? Elisha gives the exact same answer that he did the first time. He's still feeling sorry for himself. Elisha's response in verses 9 and 10 and 13 and 14, his response in those two places are a common lie from Satan. You're the only one. You're all alone. No one else is righteous. Was that true? No. It wasn't true. But that was how he felt. That was what he chose to believe. It wasn't true at all. When you run in fear, you will believe lies. When you run in fear, you will believe lies. Lies about ourselves. I'm worthless. I have no future. Lies about God. God doesn't care about me. God can't or won't provide. God won't forgive me. Those are all lies. But those are the things we believe when we start running in fear. Lies about ourselves and lies about God. There were still, God told him, there were still 7,000 people who faithfully were serving Him. And Elijah thought he alone was faithful. He didn't know what God was doing behind the scenes. He couldn't see that all these people were faithful. They probably felt like they had to hide. So Elijah assumed he's alone, or Satan got him to doubt and believe that he's the only one. These 7,000 people God referred to were in addition to the vast number of people who had just turned from Baal worship back to worshiping God. But Elijah believed he was alone. Notice again how God responds to Elijah's discouragement and depression. Putting it in my own words, he said, Elijah, I'm with you. Go back and face your fear. Go back to where you stopped trusting me. I have work for you to do. I'm providing someone to help you and to learn from you. You are not the only righteous person. Reading verses 19 through 21. So he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the twelfth, and Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back, for what have I done to you? So Elisha returned from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Elijah obeyed the Lord. He went back north where he had come from. He followed God's instructions. You know, interesting thing in thinking about what God told him to do there was three, three things he was to do. And if you read on in this, we don't have time this morning, but if you read on in this passage, you will find that Elisha only, I'm sorry, I'm switching names now, that Elijah only did one of those three things. He was obedient. He went and he, he appointed uh, Elisha to be his servant and trained him. Elisha, After after the Lord took Elijah, Elisha went on to do the other two things. God was already thinking beyond Elijah's life. He wasn't just focusing on Elijah. He was looking beyond that and what God would do through the man Elijah trained. That's how far ahead God was thinking. And Elijah was afraid God wasn't going to take care of him. Elijah obeyed. He didn't stay scared, discouraged, and defeated. He chose to trust God, go back the way he had come, and face his fears. It is possible in a group this size this morning that we have people here this morning that are experiencing seeing God at work in powerful, obvious ways, and it's exhilarating. It's also possible that at the same time, some of us here this morning may be discouraged disillusioned because God isn't acting in the same way as He did in the past. In fact, you wonder if He's doing anything. I've been there. It's also possible that you feel like you're all alone. No one really cares. No one's seeking God with all their heart. I want to say this morning that the way God responded to Elijah is the way God responds to you and I. God can and does work through ordinary people who love Him. People like Elijah. People who experience fear, discouragement, and depression. People like you and I. The most important thing is that we keep listening to that gentle whisper. That we keep listening to God. The fact that you are alive today says that God has work for you to do. Each one of us. John Ruskin said, No one is without a divinely appointed task and the divine means for getting it done. Let me repeat that. No one is without a divinely appointed task and the divine means for getting it done. You know, it was through spending time alone with God that Elijah had the courage to go back and face his fears. It's when we're in that quiet place with God that He can show us who He is, what He's done in the past, and what He will do, what He wants to do in the future. God was already planning beyond Elijah's life. Turning to James chapter 5, reading verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah was a man like us. He dealt with the same weaknesses, fears, doubts, discouragement, depression, whatever you and I face, He's, he dealt with those same things. And I'm encouraged to see how God responded to Elijah in his weakness. The story of Elijah is a story of hope. It gives hope for me that he's a man like us and God still was able to work through him. Elijah is a man like us. Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word that's living and active. Lord, I thank you for the stories of people's lives that we can read, that we can see an an overview and learn from it. Thank you that you are just the same today as you were in Elijah's day that you respond to us the way you did to Elijah. Lord, we just pause and recognize that we need you desperately. We can't handle life on our own. The sooner we realize that, the better. Lord, may we listen to your still small voice, to your gentle whisper and walk in step with you I believe you can do powerful things because of your spirit working in us. Lord, we commit ourselves to walking with you this week. May you bless us in that. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being here, and you're dismissed.